to BEPS actions 8 through 10, increased tax scrutiny, and additional reporting requirements, tax authorities are honing in on value creation and the benefits associated with the performed activities. This is where the value chain analysis comes in. It's essential for planning and defending M&E's transfer pricing and can illuminate different areas of business activity within the company. Today's episode of The Fiona Show Transfer Pricing is dedicated to the value chain analysis, from how to conduct one to its evolution from pre-BEPS to post-BEPS, and the ways it can spill over into other parts of transfer pricing documentation. I'm your host, Matthew DeMello. Joining us today is cross-border chief economist Mimi Song and transfer pricing and international corporate income tax expert Johan Muller. Now, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Sun, sand, and new transfer pricing rules sounds like paradise in the Dominican Republic, if you're a tax professional. The Caribbean nation is changing up its transfer pricing regulations with Decree 256-21. The guidance applies to fiscal years beginning January 1st, 2021 and addresses comparability analysis provisions, the pertinent factors for delineation of related party transactions, and how to conduct a risk analysis. It also spells out the three-tier documentation requirements solidified by the country's membership in the inclusive framework on BEPS in October 2018. For taxpayers, it's time to up their SPF, that's scrutiny protection factor, or risk getting burned by the tax authority. Intangible transactions can be stickier than Vegemite, but thanks to the ATO, they don't have to be. The tax agency published a draft compliance guideline on intangible arrangements. The aim? To help taxpayers identify and eliminate risks associated with this highly scrutinized area of transfer pricing. The draft also clarifies how to back arrangements with evidentiary support in case of an audit. While the guidelines are technically in the consultation phase, it will help taxpayers feel like they're not lost in the woods. The government agency is taking comments until June 2021. The European Commission is at it again. The organization announced its latest ploy in the quest for tax transparency, a rule for multinationals to publicly disclose their effective corporate tax rate. Talk about putting it all out there. While the EU corporate tax rates range from 9 to 30 percent, the commission isn't convinced that M&Es are squeaky clean in their application. The plan would also require multinationals to share shell company information quote, to assess whether they have substantial presence and real economic activity, unquote. The commission hopes to formally propose the rules later this year in conjunction with another transparent move, public country-by-country reporting. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing 
software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions' AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions' transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp and i want to hand off the reins to this conversation to cross-border solutions chief economist mimi song to discuss value chain analyses with transfer pricing and international corporate income tax expert johan muller mimi you have the floor Thanks, Matthew. Johan, I'm, I'm extremely excited to have you as a guest on our podcast today. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. So let's just start off real quick with a couple of get to know you questions. Where are you currently and what's happening in terms of COVID-19? Okay, I'm, <laughs> I'm in, <laughs> in Denmark. I would want to say Copenhagen, Denmark, but technically I'm living in a place called Frederiksberg, which is a small little village right outside Copenhagen. COVID is, I think we've got it relatively under control. I mean, the numbers are quite low, but we're still in some degree of lockdown. If you want to go to a restaurant, you must have a test passport showing that you've been tested within the last 72 hours and, and, and that the test has been negative. But fortunately, they have test centers everywhere. So we actually went for a test today, and I think all in all, it took maybe an hour to get tested and to have the result within half an hour. So we're slowly turning up. We're slowly opening up. That's great to hear. It sounds like at least you're getting back to some sense of normalcy, right? You have over 20 years of experience in international taxation and transfer pricing. What have you found to have changed over those years? Or maybe the other question is, you know, what do you think has remained consistent? I think an incredible amount has changed. I mean, when, when, when I started in the early 90s, Tax planning was a sexy word, <laughs> the same for, for structured finance and things like that. You know, we, we used to go to Dutch tax authorities for rulings, and it was rare if it took more than six months. A ruling request was maybe five or six pages, and they were pretty run-of-the-mill and standardized, and you were pretty sure to get them. I think that has changed a lot, you know, uh, starting in the 90s, going from rulings to APAs. Quite frankly, when I, when I started, I mean, I hardly knew anything about transfer pricing. For me, transfer pricing only came across my way around 2005, 2006, when a company asked me to help them with their transfer pricing documentation. And at that stage, you know, the, the company hiring me, when I said I knew nothing about transfer pricing, they say it's okay, there's not a lot to know, you can figure it out. I think it's gone a long, a long way from there. You know, yeah. it's uh, definitely in the tax world. I mean, it's obviously always been an economic discipline, but, but I think tax lawyers were, were very unaware of that. And yeah, I think nowadays, I mean, it just becomes more and more complex, but I think also more interesting and, and more accurate in its approach. And then I think the golden thread across of all of this is everything has become a lot more fact-based. Right. And it's nice, which, which actually makes the job more interesting rather than less. 
Yep. And, you know, during your tenure, you actually also worked as a case handler for the Danish competent authority. So you were actually able to see what was happening on the inside. Tell us more about that experience. Okay. It was actually interesting because it, it, it was it was around the period 2000, 2006 through 2009, 10. I mean, there were, there were some big documents coming from the OECD, right? We, we, mm-hmm. we had the we had chapter nine, which was being finished on business restructurings. And we had the AOA being finished on allocation of profits to PEs. And I was in business at that time. I was working with Maersk and we were in a tax advocacy group, TEI, the Tax Executive Institute. And we did a lot of submissions with regard to, with giving input to those chapters in the OECD. And obviously, as you do, you learn a lot more about it. The OECD was also in a process where they opened up much more for input from business as opposed to before when the only real input went through BIAC. And I was fascinated by the process. And so when I wanted to change jobs from MERSC to something else, I thought, well, you know, let me let me go and see what it looks like on the, on the other side. And let me go and work in the kitchen. So I got hired by the Danish Competent Authority, and I was a case handler for them. I also got to represent Denmark at the OECD in Working Party 6, which was a fascinating experience by itself as well, because you really got to see how, how these documents got put together. You got to share so many ideas with so many different people from different countries. I really enjoyed the process. And then as a case handler, well, first of all, you see the other side, right? I, I remember one of the first cases that I did it was a big multi-country case and, and they came to drop the transfer pricing documentation files and it literally was about almost close to a meter high in reading. And I thought, okay, this is wow. payback time, right? I mean, it, you know, <laughs> now we need to sit and then plow through all of this. Um, but I would also say but what you see being on the other side is It'll be a little sacrilegious to say if you've seen if you've seen one, you've seen all. Mm-hmm. But you do see a lot of template-driven transfer pricing going on, yeah. which is something which is steering away from facts. It's not steering towards facts. And there's a saying among competent authorities: oh, aren't, you, "Aren't you so tired of seeing the same seven comparables swap up again?" I think we're moving away from that, and I think that's that that, that is a good thing. So, Johan, based on your experience, right? I can assume the type of mistakes that you see multinationals make over and over again. But instead of assuming, let me find out from your perspective, what kinds of mistakes do you think that M&Es are making over and over again? What do you think the most common mistake is? I, I, <laughs> I think most multinationals want to be good corporate citizens. There's no doubt about that. And that's also what they say. And that's also what you read in their tax policy statements and all those things. I think what is incredibly difficult is when there are rubber meet the road. To stick yeah. to that. It is very easy to say we want to be upright, we want to do things right, etc. etc. But when you discover something and, and there's a potential multi-million dollar exposure that comes up, it becomes very difficult for multinationals not to go into logical fallacies and arguments which simply do not make sense in order to, to deal with that. And it can be very difficult to deal with issues like that, especially if you're in-house. I mean, I've been with companies where when I raised flags, I was asked whether I was still loyal to the company, wow. et cetera, et cetera. But I've also seen the opposite. You know, I've seen, I've seen countries take very hard battles with unreasonable tax inspectors, where the companies had some skeletons in the closet and they were, they, I mean, they were fighting with one hand only because they were so terrified of the inspectors finding out something else. And it is no way to do a discussion. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day, 
one should be as transparent as possible. And if you discover issues and if something is just wrong, you know, deal with it and get it behind you. If it's a risk, manage this as, as well as you can. But do not try and make things diffuse because you really end up in future situations where the fallout of not being transparent just becomes worse and worse and worse as you go along. Wow, that's actually a great point. And, you know, when you think about it, there's this balance that tax professionals have to make between the fiduciary duty to the shareholders and the company, right? As well as the moral duty to be a good corporate taxpaying citizen. So the more transparent you are, I'm up for a hard discussion and things like that, but Mm -hmm. the more transparent you are, the, the easier it is to have that discussion. And I think also, maybe on a subconscious level, the, the, the more convincing you, you come over, you, know, you come across, you know, the more believable you can you present your case. So with that being said, Johan, let's get into the heart of what we're talking about, right? We hear this phrase in transfer pricing a lot, substance over form. And I think this is also in line with what we were just talking about in terms of what you've learned about taxpayers being on the competent authority side. What does the OECD mean when they talk about substance over form? I think you can best summarize that by looking at the new Chapter 1D as it came out of BEPS. Mm-hmm. When, when you look at Chapter 1 pre-BEPS, you know, they talked about functional analysis and stuff like that, but, but it, was not, it was not a very lengthy chapter. And if you, if you then think about a little bit about the evolution, especially of transfer pricing-driven transactions such as Tescom transactions or, you know, where you did the business restructuring and you converted a full-fledged distributor into, into a limited risk distributor and all of those things. The, the narrative from the taxpayer's side to the tax authorities have always been, oh, but we've now transferred all the risk. Therefore, that's why the profit goes along with that, right? Mm. And, and the issue is what does transferring the risk mean? And I think the OECD has really done a great job of explaining uh, in substance over form manner what, what the transfer of risk or what the control of risk means when you look at issues from a transfer pricing point of view in, in the sense that they before it was just this whole mantra of, you know, the assets, the, the functions performed, the assets used and the risks assumed, et cetera, et cetera, and then you move on. Now there's a six-step process. Mm-hmm. in deciding who is controlling the risk. And you look at the contract, but you look also at the behavior of the parties. You look at who's got the, the resources to actually deal with the risk if it should be materializing and all those things. And, and it, it just has become a much more real and far more factual questions that need to be answered before you can just say, you know, um, now we know who's assuming the risk. What surprises me almost a bit from that mantra is that it hasn't changed. You still hear people talk, about functions performs as, uh, as it's used and risk assumed, I would have expected it to change to risk control because that's what has come uh, about much, much more. Yeah, no, and all of that really is this idea of form over substance has led to this idea of a value chain analysis, right? And so let's start off by just defining, you know, what is a value chain analysis? Yeah, sure. I think like a lot of things that we take over from the economists in, in, in tax land, we, we tend to dilute it and, and change it a little bit. The way I've been told what a value chain analysis is, if you imagine a guy crawling through the desert in search of a glass of water and finding one, compared to someone standing in a bar having some nice beers and being offered another glass of water as well. I mean, for one, the, the glass of water is life-saving. For the other, it's not worth that much. And, mm-hmm. and it's almost like if you look at the supply chain of the group, that's how you almost want to look at the value chain as well. You want to see 
where is the most value for a customer created? If you're buying a Tesla, maybe it is in, in the pure design of the car. It is, it is in the manufacturing, it's in all the technique that's in it. If you were to buy another model, if you were to buy a Mercedes or something like that, you might be spending much more attention to the brand, right? Mm -hmm. The value chain is, I mean, for, for one, it is all the marketing and advertising and everything else that goes into building the brand and then being able to sell the cars. For the other one, I mean, as we've heard must say, you know, for him, it's all about you make a great product, then, then the sales will follow and you don't need any marketing. So, I mean, you can sell the exact same product, but the value is going to be created from, from very different points of view. Right. So value chain supply, I would say, you know, if you want to explain what a value chain is, you need to talk about what a supply chain is. And I mean, the supply chain would obviously be from buying the rolls of tin, if we stick with the car examples, mm -hmm. all the way down to the rubber for the tires and producing it and then selling it and, and distributing it, which would be a very linear process from raw materials to end product. Whereas your value chain should still follow that, but it should, it should identify within that whole supply chain where the actual value is created. And that's probably the most difficult thing in transfer pricing is to understand what creates that premium in the product that I'm selling. Right, right. Like using your example with the guy in the desert, I'm sure he would be willing to pay $100 for that glass of water versus the guy in the bar, right? So exactly. <laughs> for that glass of water. So how does this value chain analysis help taxpayers ensure that they are evaluating their transfer pricing off of substance? How does it relate to this concept of substance? If you really want to do a value chain analysis, you, you have to understand who does what in the business. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you have to, let me describe it this way. When I was in-house, one of the ways that I like to do my transfer pricing documentation on files is to simply get a dump from the HR department, from the group HR department of everyone in the organization, who's mm -hmm. reporting to who, who's reporting to who's reporting to. If you then take that top-down approach and you go to every, every group that consists of more than 10 to 15 people, Mm -hmm. and you ask their leader, tell me what you're doing, you get an incredible insight into all the different processes that's happening in the business, right? And in that process, you, you, you get an, an, an idea of just how much you need to consider in order to do things and to get them done. But at the end of the day, you also have to look when you're done with that pool, and this can be a 30-page description of very dense facts. Right. You know, you need to say, okay, so what makes us different? What makes us tick? If you are, for instance, let's say you're moving to natural products, you sell tea. I mean, you may have 5,000 pluckers of tea leaves working mm -hmm. on plantations in Indonesia or India or China or wherever. And you may only have a head office of, of 150 or 200 people. And how do you decide who gets which part of the profit? You need to, you need to figure out what kind of decisions were made to generate at the end of the day that profit. And, and probably one of the ways of doing that is to see who in that process is easily replaceable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you can outsource it, that probably is not necessarily the driver of your profit, right? If, right. if, you, look at, if you look at Apple, they sell incredible products, but they make <laughs> almost none of them, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So clearly making the products is you are replaceable, but but doing that kind of design, I, I very much doubt if Apple ever could have successfully outsourced their design or their innovation and then come up with, with, with the same profitability. 
Right. And to your point, I I think that that is actually a, a really great way to think about it, who is replaceable. And I was thinking when you're asking the questions about the people, the one question in terms of value is what makes you special, right? Like, what is it that you're doing that's so special and unique that differentiates your role from other roles? And I think that ultimately goes and plays into the fact that are you replaceable in in some way or can this function apparently be outsourced? But this makes me think, what is the difference between a value chain and a traditional functional analysis, right? We have to link those two together. Yeah, I'd say a value chain is a series of uh, functional analysis. You know, in, in the example that I just talked about where you go to the HR department, you get a breakdown of the whole group, you ask all these subgroups what they're doing. Effectively, what you're doing for every subgroup is you're making a small functional analysis of, of what are the functions that they are performing. Mm-hmm. You may not at that stage look at the assets necessarily that they are controlling, but you might look at the risks that they do create through their functions and how they try to control those risks, right? And, and if you put all of that together then you will end up with your value chain. I mean, you will start with, with your R&D department and trying to understand exactly what it is that they do, how do they decide what to research next, who decides that for them, who decides how they get the money for that that they need to spend on it. And you will move up and you'll do a functional analysis, if you want, of the R&D. And then you will move from there to production if there's nothing in between. Mm-hmm. And you will look at the production in terms of well, you know, who's running the factories? Who's determining when we do the machine shifts? How, who's, who's looking at, I mean, in any factory nowadays, optimizing it and making it even more efficient and things like that. And just trying to understand what it is that people do. If you are looking at production and you have, let's say, 100 factory workers and a team of 36 engineers, it's going to be very interesting to understand what it is that so many engineers do because comparatively, that's a lot more people than, than you would see or maybe expect in an ordinary ratio, right? And, and that might lead you to a point where you say, well, the machines that we use for our manufacturing are so special or the products that we produce are so finely graded that they need to be, that the machines need to be recalibrated all the time. And that will also lead you to, well, then, you know, maybe, maybe part of the value that we are selling is that we have these incredibly accurately calibrated products that we are making, Mm -hmm. which I guess in the IT industry is almost the norm, but also in the health industry could be pretty important. Mm -hmm. And as you were talking, I was thinking about it and thinking, okay, so the functional analysis, they're the base components, right? And then the supply chain is the connection between those base components. And then the value chain layers is one layer on top of that to understand within this particular scenario, what are the major value drivers, right? Exactly. Exactly. And if you want to then add another component to that, I mean, transfer pricing, if you strip it down to its bare minimum, it simply comes down to what is the price, right? That's all you're trying to do. And in doing that and in reaching that price, you go through this thing that we call a comparability analysis, where Mm -hmm. you go from the steps where you I mean, you look at the year, that's normally pretty obvious, but then you then you go into understanding the transactions and, and, and the circumstances of the transaction. And one of the things that are important there is that you need to look at the five comparability factors, right? Such as what are the products or the services? What is your business strategy? What are the economic markets like? I mean, if you have a contract, what does it say? But then 
The last element of the five is, is the functional analysis. So it also interlaps with all of these things. You know, your functional analysis fit into, into like you say, your elements of your supply chain, mm-hmm. which then feeds into your value chain. But within the value chain, you would also want to very closely understand your comparability factors at each stage of that process or at each link in the chain. Right. And Johan, you were talking earlier about if you were doing your internal analysis, right? And I think you were referencing in terms of the functional analysis that you would download the list of all the employees and the groups and then Mm -hmm. interview the head departments. Is that how you would also conduct the value chain or is that just you know, in terms of figuring out the value chain analysis. Yeah, would, would you yeah, take a different yeah. approach, right? Just a short note there. I, I didn't say I would interview people, but, but, <laughs> but, but you're right. That is, that is a standard practice. Yeah. I find interviews incredibly time-consuming and not that efficient. What I would do there is I would send the head of the department an email and ask them to explain to me what they're doing in five to six sentences. And normally you get an answer the same day and, and you're done. But to get back to how, you know, how, how does fit into the value chain, Yes. I mean, if, if you want to determine the value chain, I mean, you would have to look at all the processes going on in the business, but, but you'd also have to listen, I think, very closely to the business leaders and understand from them, you know, what the strategy is, where, where they're coming from. And let's say that your goal as a business, your strategy is to make very good basic products at a low price and sell as many of them as possible. Right. High volume, you know, then, low margin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Right. And um, then your your value chain or your value creators are probably going to be in your capacity to make your production as scalable as possible at the lowest possible price. Right. So so that might be very much where you focus on what is creating value for your grouping in, in that area. On the other hand, if you if you if you say I'm going to sell high end luxury products, you might pay very little attention, strangely as it sounds to production and you'd be far more focused on on storefronts marketing and things like that i mean you would you would almost as given assume that you would use the best of the best raw materials and stuff like that but your value is i mean if you look at the italian fashion industry for instance what i've been told from people in the fashion industry is you know when you look at leather products or stuff like that i mean most of the big houses most of the big names they outsource the production of that to very small, specialized families operating within, because it's Italy, Italy, right? So it's not a production for them. It's something completely different. So you, so you would have to understand business strategy and, and then determine how does that fit in with the rest of the value. Understood. So let me summarize this quickly. A value chain analysis is essential in transfer pricing because it provides context into the company's global value chain and pinpoints value drivers. Unlike a traditional functional analysis, it places more emphasis on the relationship between value drivers and the correlated functions, assets, and risks, right? A successful value chain is done ultimately by defining areas of review, understanding expected results, gathering information, analyzing, and of course, documenting, right? So as the name implies, it is, it's a chain and it's important to spell out how all those chains are linked before tax authorities do it for you, ultimately. What issues do you think the OECD was specifically tackling when they introduced BEPS Action 8 through 10, aligning transfer pricing outcomes with value creation? I think they were trying to get a lot closer to substance, basically. 
I mean, if, if you look at if you look at what 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 BEPS action eight through ten, let's start at a, at a different point. Okay. Because because BEPS was the outcome uh, for for transfer pricing, definitely the outcome of a longer process, right? If you go to the to the business restructuring chapter, chapter nine, I mean that thing took I think about 10, 12 years to write. So what happened was you had in, in, in the 90s, you had the big four and a lot of other advisors selling these business restructuring transactions of converting fully fledged manufacturers and, and distributors into, into low risk distributors and, and, and contract manufacturers and moving all the profits to principles. And if you could put the principle in the low tax jurisdiction, that was even better, right? So the OECD started working on that, and, and now we're getting to something that's very much my interpretation, but but but, but uh, let's go with that. They wrote chapter nine. I mean, the chapter on intangibles was a thirty-page chapter, which made a difference between marketing intangibles and trading intangibles, which was quite a useless uh, distinction because both ended up being treated the same for transfer pricing purposes. So I never quite understood that distinction. But the OECD was onto something in the business restructuring chapter where they said you're moving something of value. Right, and it wasn't quite clear what that was, and so they came up with this. I, I thought at the time pretty weird concept of profit potential. Mm. I can remember discussing this and saying, you know, I've never heard anyone buying something and then saying, oh, but what is my profit potential here if you if you buy an asset or if you move an asset? But that's what they came to, and that chapter got uh, adopted. I think around two thousand six, two thousand seven, something like that. And they said, we're going to work further on this. And, and, and they worked further on business restructurings in two ways. The first was that they started working on the intangibles chapter, even before BEPS, mm-hmm. and said, we need to nail this down to explain what, what, it, what it is that's being transferred here. The second, well, it was a two-pronged attack. The second was that they said, you know what, if you one day you have a distributor that, that, that makes 100 and it's fully fledged, and the next day it only makes five because now it's a limited risk distributor, then the country missing the 95 needs to have some kind of basis of argument for where that 95 went. And they were considering generating PEs for that. Mm. And you saw countries like Italy, for instance, arguing if you have a contract manufacturer and you've got no risk, then you know what? Then your principal has a PE in Italy because you don't have any risk. Someone must take the decisions and that happens and it affects you here. So you have PE in Italy. So, so that's where things were already before BEPS started, right? And then BEPS got announced in, in, in 2012 and there were these 15 action points. And intangibles got included as one of the action points. And now I must confess to you, I can't remember exactly what 9 and 10 were, but, but, but they wanted to address a number of other things, such as, for instance, thick capitalization. And, and there was quite a lot of work done during BEPS, but in the end, they stopped that stuff. And, and then they also very much worked on Chapter 1D and this whole idea of who's controlling the risk. So what BEPS did was it, 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 it fast-forwarded the intangibles chapter very much focusing on substance as well and on, you know, who's doing what. Um, but I'll make a note to the side on that. And then the discussion on Chapter 1D and really getting to substance when it comes to functions and to risks. The intangibles chapter uh, had a bit of a strange twist to it because it could have been a very different chapter if parties were just prepared to accept the concept of economic substance, economic ownership. If we could have put something like economic ownership in the intangible chapter, it would have read very differently. But, but there was not the will to do that. 
And because of that, they had to really take a detour and, and, and say, okay, we will, we will honor legal ownership and say that legal ownership is important, but we will carve out income belonging to legal ownership for every function that the legal owner does not perform. In an ironic, twisted way, it made the intangibles chapter even more substance-focused than it might have been otherwise. And then, of course, uh, actually you had Action 13 with, with the documentation, which, which I think was a really good thing because it really helped standardize documentation for taxpayers everywhere. Right. So then we got introduced to the concept of, well, I don't know if it was an introduction, but reinforcement of the DEMPI functions, right? Exactly. And you're right. When they talked about the intangible chapter and, and all of this, the value chain analysis came very much to the forefront in terms of, you know, who's doing what and all those things. And, and then during that process, they also introduced the DEMPI functions, which I think has been a great way of describing what you can do with intangibles and what the functions for intangibles are. What, what is interesting is if you look at the DEMPI functions, there's two or three things that, that happen in some of the OECD documents. I mean, you can talk about development, enhancement, maintain, maintenance, protection, and exploitation of a product and, or, or a brand or whatever, and you, and you seem to have covered it all. But when you look at it closely, you realize that they had very specific industries in mind. For instance, mm -hmm. the pharmaceutical industries, right? right. Because there, the, the DEMPE functions work very well. If you try, for instance, let's say you are dealing with, I'll go back to my tea leaves, right? Mm -hmm. Let's say you deal with very strong brands in tea leaves. You are the world's biggest tea producer or something like that. Mm -hmm. And the marketing is key and brands are key in, in, in your business. If you try to apply the the DEMPE functions to, to, for instance, the brands, it, it kind of breaks down a bit because let's say that you're in a country and new competitors enter and they advertise very aggressively and you respond with, with advertisements as well. What are you doing? Are you developing your brand in that country? No, because it's there already, right? But are you enhancing it or are you just maintaining it to make sure that you maintain your sales? Or are you really protecting it? I mean, it, to me, it's not clear in which of the boxes all of that effort would fall. You know, and also if you decide to expand your sales by doing very aggressive marketing campaign, is that marketing campaign, is that, is that then development or is that enhancement? You know, it, it kind of breaks down a little bit there. And what I find interesting is if you go through the guidelines, we all know the, the acronym very well. We know what it stands for. But there's not really anywhere in the guidelines that they describe exactly what each of these five steps are. It is just a concept that looks like it's got five parts, but it's actually only just one concept that's being sold. Right. That's a great example because I agree. It gets difficult when you're looking at it on a case-by-case -case basis. Definitely, I think that the DEMPI functions and those types of concepts were developed with the mindset of a few very large multinational taxpayers. Right? Exactly. So. <laughs> and, and, and it also doesn't really give guidance in terms of, you know, which of those, I mean, if you, you, can, you, can, you can say you can do your own value chain analysis on the DEPI functions, you know, mm -hmm. which, which of those create the most value or are they all equal in value or not? And, and I, I mean, at the end of the day, I guess the answer would have to be it's extremely fact dependent, right? right. I mean, if you talk about protection, you typically, especially about trademarks and stuff like that, you typically talk about the legal department making sure that no one is infringing it, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. And, you know, it, it, it's almost a low risk routine function from that point of view until it does get infringed. Yeah. yeah. And you basically have to fight for the survival of your, of your company and your brand 
you know, then it becomes an extremely valuable and extremely important function within the acronym. But, and I think it gets, you know, even more complicated because taking your tea leaves example, like the brand is valuable, but then what if there's a special way that these people are picking the tea leaves, right? And it's based on like a very special process. You can't, I've never personally picked tea leaves, so I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe it, maybe hand picking them makes a difference versus a machine, right? And so then in my mind, I'm wondering, okay, well, how then do you assign value between the brand versus the actual underlying process, which both are components of value to the underlying product, right? Let me tell you an interesting story. I think it'll give part of your answer. It's, I've been in a situation where I had to deal with something like this, and it was about the tea leaf buyers, mm-hmm. right? Well, the argument was, what was the value of the tea leaf buyers to the organization? And then you start talking to these guys. Most of them, the first thing you notice is, is that most of them have been tea leaf buyers for maybe 20, 30, 35 years, Right. And you start talking to them and they say, well, you know, I only really got to understand and no tea leaves after 10 years. And then you look at their LinkedIn profiles and stuff like that, and you really see they've always been in this business. So then you realize, okay, this must be a very valuable skill and not a lot of people being able to do it. Therefore, a value adding skill. If you look at a function and you look at someone's business, someone's LinkedIn profile, and you see that, okay, they've been in the business for for two years, let's say, selling tea bags, right? And before that, they've done great at selling washing machines, and before that, they've done great at selling insurance. Then that you come back to this concept of replaceability, mm-hmm. right? Then clearly someone like that must be much more replaceable than the people actually buying the tea leaves for your production, right? for instance, right? That's very true. That specialization, that knowledge, that industry knowledge and experience, yeah. which is sometimes irreplaceable. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. Now, do you think that the importance or, or the conceptual framework of this value chain analysis has changed post-BEPS, right, versus pre-BEPS? Because even as we were talking before, personally, you think that this concept of substance over form should have been there, right? And, and companies mm-hmm. needed to be mindful of that anyways. But what do you think? Do you think that people are respecting or understanding this value chain analysis and it becomes that much more important post-BEPS? I, I think it has become a lot more important post-BEPS, but it's become a lot more important because it's become a requirement in the master file. I think that really forced a lot of groups to to also rethink their transfer pricing, to also 
you know, try and look at the, at the bigger picture. I mean, it, it is very, it's very easy to do transfer pricing with documentation of, of 100 pages of, mm-hmm. about your group or whatever, right? It, it is extremely difficult to do the same on one page and to defend why your profits or your residual profits and your losses go, why they go where they go. And then the value chain analysis kind of forces you to do that. And, and I think it's interesting in that regard also that, that Action 13 says that you can do the value chain analysis as a graphic, hmm. right? Because yeah, it, that's it is right. something that you need to visualize. It forces you to understand the whole process of what your group is doing not just a little part of it, and to understand how things fit together. And, and from that point of view, I mean, because it's now a requirement in the master file, I think it has become a lot more important in transfer pricing in general. I think, I think before BEPS, maybe it was a more and more popular becoming defense mechanism, right. but very crude in its application. And now it's, it's, it's developing more into a refined skill. Would you recommend that multinationals, as they do a value chain analysis, look at the allocation or the distribution of the entire system profit? I actually look at the dollar values across that chain as in profit, right? The distribution of the entire system profit, right? Across each of those components of the value chain. I think system profit is, is, is a very interesting thing because if you think of a group manufacturing stuff and then promoting it and selling it you know Mm -hmm. you you always have this issue where the money only comes in at one point right and that's at the very end but the money has to flow through the whole chain yes down to the very bottom where you start your r&d before you do your production and the question just is how much money needs to go through each stage basically right and what is the reason for that And, and and i think from that point of view, yes, the value chain explains how that money needs to go and where it needs to go. Cost is not the, the end all and be all of that because, I mean, the production can cost a hell of a lot and, and, and your strategic management, even though your your top people may be very expensive, I mean, comparatively, that cost might be quite little, but it can make or break your profit at the end of the day, right? So. I think as you go through the value chain with mm-hmm. this bag of money and, and decide what, what to leave where, you need to decide where is the value created and you need to leave the residual there, right? Right. There's another issue here. And this is, I mean, we, 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 we tend to always talk about a profit environment. And that's how a value chain also also works, right? I mean, that's how we distribute the profits. But, but, but we need to also talk about loss environments. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I want to talk about loss environments is, is because when the losses are huge, that's when the risks have kicked in. Yes. And that's when the risks have materialized. And you can almost say that you can make a, a, a risk chain analysis of where the risks should be dropped. Okay, But if you do that, the, the, the issue is the residual profit and the residual risk in, in almost all situations that I can imagine must stop at the same point. I've never seen anyone saying, you know, if everything goes to hell and gone, I'll pay for it no matter what, but you can keep the residual profit. I don't care about that. (laughs) You know, the residual profit follows the residual risk. And and in a way, it is a little ironical that we we talk only about value creation because, I mean, the honest risk management is a very key element of value creation. We're missing half the picture. 
I think you that's, I, mean? that's a, I agree. I, I think that's a really important point, especially since we're talking about an environment where we just all as on a global basis had, had been suffering from an economic perspective, right? Where the marketing conditions that, were impacted yes. and we are talking about much more loss making environment, but I like that it's a risk chain analysis as opposed to a value chain analysis. <laughs> I think you need to do both. I think you need to do both. The issue, and to come back to your question, is you cannot only put the profit where value is created if, if, if the point where the value is created is not capable of bearing the risk. Whoever controls the risk actually outsourced the value creation somewhere because they're going to want to see the residual and in exchange for seeing the residual, they will accept picking up the losses. I think we can distill that down to ultimately, you know, value does not always equal residual profit, right? And I mean, just in a theoretical framework, that's that's the point we're coming from that, hey, if you have a lot of value, you're able to command more profit, right? Intangibles ultimately create more value, which in turn create more profit. But that's not always the case. There's the risk factor. It goes both ways, right? We need to bear in mind both. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So BEPS has clearly magnified the need for taxpayers to be fully aware of their value chain from the drivers to related risks and functions. It's very beneficial for both tax administrations and taxpayers because it decreases the potential for transfer mispricing and helps provide a side-by-side comparison of economic value creation and transfer pricing outcomes. So why is it that some companies have a harder time, you think, creating or executing or understanding their value chain analysis? And what do you think MNEs can do to create a successful value chain or, or risk chain analysis, right? I think the short answer is follow the facts. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I think groups run into into problems when the facts are not very clear or, or the facts are not to their liking. A fact might be, you know, that you might like to have your profits in a low tax jurisdiction, but you do not have your value creators in a low tax jurisdiction. And then you start creating artificial arguments, artificial structures in order to, to, to separate the two, and then things become complex, right? And on top of that, I mean, business in general can be very complex. You know, I, I, I've, been, I've been fortunate to work in, in some incredibly centralized groups where everything, but literally everything go, goes to the principal, and then it is relatively easy to manage your value chain because everything is clear. But I've also seen groups where through nobody's fault, things develop, and the creation of value moves or has been misidentified from the very start. You know, I've been with a group where there were three divisions. I mean, they were making three different types of products. Mm-hmm. And one type of product was, was managed and controlled from, uh, let's say, Belgium. And another type of product was managed and controlled from Denmark. And a third type was, let's say, from Germany. And this is how the annual reports were prepared, and this was how the transfer pricing documents were prepared, and, and everything ran that way. And, and, and they got into quite a big dispute about intangibles. And the basic assumption was that, that the intangibles ought to be where that particular group of products is, is managed from. And it was quite a long dispute, and, and, and actually what we found in the end was that that's not really how the value in the group worked at all. The way the group worked, the the value in the group worked was 
that you had marketing and sales and you had production. And in this particular group, production was very clearly totally subservient to marketing and sales. Production simply did what marketing and sales told them to do, which would be, for instance, the opposite of what one would expect a group like Tesla would be, right? I mean, for them, you know. So, so in the end, I mean, the discussion about where the intangibles belonged was completely out of place and misplaced because basically the intangibles belonged with marketing and sales and marketing and sales was actually concentrated in one place only. You know, so, so you, you, you really need to understand the value creation again and follow the facts. And maybe not make too many assumptions, right? Because I think not that the assumptions kill assumptions. us, yes. <laughs> and it comes again down to this thing of who does what, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the, moment, the moment in that particular case, we realize that it is the marketing and sales departments that tell the production departments what to make of which products and how much to make of that and all that stuff. I mean, basically half the case was decided. But because everyone very dutifully and and diligently followed the buildup that we had in the annual accounts, I mean, they were thinking in product silos, which which here simply were not applicable. Interesting. Well, let's talk about in real life situations, because this is exactly, I think, part of the challenge and the problem that we saw in the Medtronic and Coca-Cola court cases where the value chain analysis And the difficulty of trying to assess where value was created, created a lot of challenges. Can you provide some insight here in terms of what M&Es can learn from these specific cases and situations? I must confess to you, I don't know the Medtronic case very well. (laughs) Are you familiar with what happened with Coca-Cola? It's also still out, right? I mean, because it's been going on for a long time. There's been this issue of whether they want to have the cut or the CPM method and the judge coming and the tax court coming up with their own comparable and whether it matches. But it's a little far from the facts for me to to say something. I I have looked at the Coca-Cola case quite closely and actually made a video about that as well. Yes. I find Coca-Cola case very interesting. I mean, first of all, I would have been baffled as well if if, if I was told, you know, I, I made an agreement with the tax authorities on how to calculate my profit and, and I did. And then I'm told a couple of years later that, that that was wrong. On the other hand, I'm quite sure that there must have been a significant change in facts during that time because I'm quite sure the IRS would not have agreed on that profit division back in, what, what was it, in 2009 or 1999, when they agreed that that particular profit division with Coca-Cola, because then a lot of profit would have ended up in Brazil and, and, and these other spots as well, whether we're doing the mixing. But I do think, you know, I, I think what, what one can learn from Coca-Cola, at least from me, from the outside, is it didn't seem that they had to have their house very well in order in terms of the transactions and how they, I would say, justified the different prices for the different processes. It more seemed like parties making the syrup needed money, so let's give them the money and we've got some cash there, so send an invoice to the distributor supporters and let them get the cash. You know, it, it, because they were, I mean, there was no systematic system in there of whom they invoiced for mixing the syrup. So. I would say in Coca-Cola, to me, the lesson for taxpayers would be, again, try to put your TP policy and your value chain analysis on one page so that you have the overview of it and then stick to it and make it logic. I mean, there, there, there was a lot of missing logic in the Coca-Cola case right. from right. the taxpayer's point of view. I think your point is well taken in that 
perhaps anyone of us, if we were in those shoes, we would be a little bit surprised, right? Because the IRS is taking a, a completely different position than what was accepted. Exactly. But, but I think the IRS was right in saying, you know, it cannot be so that the profits are made in Brazil and not in the Coca-Cola company in the U.S. where, where everything is decided and run. That was pure logic. Right. Yeah, I'm, I am curious as to why they had accepted it before, unless your point is well taken, Johan, of the facts must have changed over that period of time. Yeah, 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 exactly. So the information that's collected in the value chain analysis, can that be, or, or should that be, I should say, applied in elements of the actual local file or transfer pricing documentation? I think absolutely, yeah. I think absolutely. I mean, I, I would say you could make a breakdown where you would describe your value chain in, in your master file as required. And then when you come to your local files where you also have to describe your business strategies, I would expect something, some reference to that value chain analysis to see something like that back in the local file under business strategy. And then maybe even under, you know, if you talk about events that happen during the year and and why certain things end up with the local company as opposed to with the principal, if you are in a principal structure, you know, also tie that back to the value chain analysis and, and, and strategy and everything. Yes. Well, that was actually going to be my next question in terms of, you know, do you think you'll see a lot of changes in a company's value chain analysis for fiscal year 2020, right? The year of the pandemic. I would say not really. I don't know. It depends on what kind of company we're talking about as well, right? Mm -hmm. If you talk about your normal brick and mortar producers and distributors, I guess a lot of them, you know, the value was was allocated to strategic management and innovation and stuff like that. I don't think that would have changed a lot. I think if you were in IT, and I've never really been in an IT company, so I'm a bit out of my depth here, but I mean, if you see some of the incredible returns and growth that these groups have made during the pandemic, maybe there would be the bigger changes in order for, I mean, for them simply scalability must have been key in, in the past year, you know? Yeah. But, uh, but I think, yeah, till November last year, I was with a medtech company making and selling stuff. I think generally it was business as usual for most of, of, of the group. You know, you, you had challenges with production, you had challenges with especially sales, you couldn't go face to face and those kind of things, but, but it didn't really change where the value was created in the group anymore. Got yeah. it. So I think let's wrap this up with, you know, what advice would you have for M&Es when they're doing their value chain analysis? Or what do you think is something that you think M&Es should be more cognizant of as they're, as they're thinking about and, and executing their value chain analysis? I think it comes down, and I'm talking very much now centralized structures. I think it comes down to being able to, to explain the whole value chain on one piece of paper, you know, mm -hmm. from R&D to, to, to sales, but also to be able to be very aware of the exceptions to that because every group has exceptions. Mm -hmm. And one of the risks is that you so strongly believe in your, in your model that you try to apply to everything even when it doesn't fit. And, and, and then you, you create risks and exposures. 
excellent advice. And I also want to add to that and say, you know, think about your value chain as a risk chain analysis, because I really do like that point. I think people need to be more cognizant of that. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. Welcome back, everyone. We're still here with Johan, and he's now subject to my favorite part of the show, which is our rapid-fire round of a little bit more personal questions, more dealing with careers, a little bit outside of tax, but that somehow still trickles in. It is a transfer pricing show, after all. But we call this rapid-fire round what we want to know, and always question one, Johan, are you ready? Yes, I am. Excellent. Question two, who is someone you admire professionally and why? I would say it's a guy called Pim Friss who was running the TP practice of Nera in Europe. And the reason is that Pim was more of a transfer pricing philosopher than a technician. He's, he knew all the techniques, but he really managed to turn transfer pricing into a philosophy or tilt it to a level of being a philosophy. Indeed. Uh, your passions, I think our audience has come to understand, are tax and teaching. What do you like about them individually? And is there something you find about them collectively that you enjoy? Is there a similarity, I guess, between them? I think at the end of the day, I enjoy teaching tax, but I find tax fascinating because it's, you know, contrary to what a lot of people expect, it's got very little to do with numbers, right? I mean, it, it, it's, it's very fact-driven. Sometimes I teach at universities and, and, and places like that. And one of the classes is, say, what can you do within a tax career? And, and typically these are non-tax people. And I would give an example. I would say I have two cows or I have a farm in another country and, and a cow and the cow dies. And I sell the farm and the cow. I'm giving up on everything. Who can tax the dead cow? You know, that is a tax question. And you see people struggle with it. And, and, and the answer is very unclear. But the, the link to all of this is that when you do look at the definition of real estate, the real estate definition in Article 6 includes livestock. And then the question is whether a dead cow is, a, is livestock or not, because it is not livestock anymore. So I like tax because it's, 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 it's factual. It's, it, it, it gives you results. You know, if you're a corporate lawyer, I mean, you, whether you're right or wrong is, is a matter of whether you have a little more or a little less risk. Sometimes in tax, and I'm going to contradict myself, you can show real numbers as to as as to what what, what the different tax uh, alternatives are. And teaching is just a passion. I, I like interacting with people. I have done a lot of acting uh, in high school and during my university years. And I think this is my my outlet for uh, for for that part of me. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I did a lot of theater, as our audience can probably tell from <laughs> high school. And uh, for a while, my fiance, especially while I was in freelance, was like, go, you know, think about being a teacher. Think about being a teacher. Couldn't bring myself. Yeah. But uh, what are you going to what are you going to do? Uh, <laughs> that's for the truly gifted, I feel. I don't want to be responsible for young minds. Give me a break. No, I'm kidding. Now, what do you find most fascinating about transfer pricing? that you get to understand the whole organization. Right. It is, you know, you, you really need to, you need to have the full picture in order to do your transfer pricing right. And the fact that it is so very, very fact intensive. Of course, of course. And how would your students describe you? I hope, I hope they don't describe me as chaotic. Let's, <laughs> let's start with that. <laughs> I understand um, that. Too. I, hopefully something along the lines of, you know, liking to take a lot of practical examples and, and to, to illustrate the points, starting from, from the technique, but then going into how you apply it. Because I think technique by itself is interesting, but, but, but without practically application, it just remains theory and it doesn't have a purpose by itself. Of course. Of course. And I think that's probably the takeaway I think our audience is going to have from your contributions to today's show, also the podcast. But we want to thank Johan for joining us on today's podcast. We want to thank everyone at home for joining us as well. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. There you'll find Cross Border Solutions' entire suite of tax podcasts. My name's Matthew DeMello, and they let me host and produce this podcast along with Andrew O'Donnell. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Marilyn Mitchum-Strom is our our executive producer. If you're vaccinated, apparently the CDC says you no longer have to wear a mask. But hey, it probably can't hurt depending on the circumstances. Use your best judgment and we'll be out of this soon, it looks like. Here's hoping. Stay safe, everyone. We'll catch you next time.